You know, this this is the American Academy of Religion that's meeting in San Francisco now. I think that you should contain your enthusiasm. And uh, you, you charismatics among us could especially be a problem. <laughs> so I hope that you won't break out um, actually and, and sort of have seriously, I think a revival among academics would not be a bad idea. Um, but, I mean, I think that the main thing is to, to contain yourself and also ask hard questions today. Uh, and then, of course, there's Rene Girard. How can we contain him, uh, even if we were able to contain ourselves? Uh, we can't. And I think that we, or most of us anyway, are thankful for that. Uh, he's going to, I don't know the title of your, what is the title of your paper, Rene? Uh, I have only San Francisco AAR. <laughs> today about uh, San Francisco AER. This is, fascinating uh, this is related to the book that he has had in progress and has actually finished in a way, mm -hmm. but is, is always perfecting these days. You, you want to say something about that? Uh, well, when you're through. Okay. <laughs> this isn't going to take much longer. Uh, we mm -hmm. have an intimation of this book, I think, as I as I talk with Renee about it, we have an intimation of this already in the chapters on the Gospels and the Scapegoat, much of what he says toward the end of the book on Job, and the selection on Satan and on anti-Semitism in the Gospels in the Girard Reader. He has spoken of the Bible as a text in travail, as a work of exegesis in progress. And there's a certain analogy, I think, between this characterization of the work of the biblical text and his own process of discovery in his life work. He was led from the discovery of mimetic desire and scapegoating to the Gospels, and his way of discovery moves out now from the Gospels to mythology. We're fortunate to have him here to share this ongoing process to understand culture and biblical revelation. It's my pleasure now to present Rene Girard. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm really going to talk a, a little bit about theories of redemption and uh, their present condition. Uh, Christianity is faith in the cross and uh, this faith of course is responsible for the immense dogmatic edifice of the first seven ecumenical councils which are the common inheritance of all Christian churches today at least in principle great churches uh, and all this is based on faith uh, in the cross according to uh, the Gospels and to, and to Paul. But how does the cross actually operate? Uh, is this a question we should ask? I mean, I think today it is a question we, we have to ask. And, uh, of course, there is a cluster of, uh, of words in the Gospels and in Paul which have been used again and again, and some of them have been more emphasized than others. 
you know, through the cross we are saved, redeemed, liberated, illuminated. Thanks to the cross we know everything previously hidden. Not only about God, but about man. And if there is one thing theology has not talked too much about, it's what the cross teaches us about uh, humankind. And, uh, of course, some of these formulas today are avoided because... Take the word redemption, for instance. The word redemption originally designates the process through which uh, a slave was bought back in order to be set free. And when this was done, the price was called a ransom. The word ransom is in the Gospels and everywhere. And this ransom, of course, was paid to the legal owner of the slaves. And many of the church fathers focused on the word redemption and they asked, to whom was that ransom paid? And since man, of course, is enslaved by the devil, most of them assumed, as a matter of fact, that the ransom was paid to the devil. And you find this in countless uh, fathers of the church, especially in the East, even though some of them Gregory of Nazianzus, for instance, refused that uh, image of uh, redemption. And sometimes there were attempts to elaborate it and to compare it to uh, Jesus, to fish bait, literally, uh, you know, such a, a strange metaphor. God had to respect the rights of the slave owner. And yet there was an element of trickery in this particular bargain because the devil was defeated by his inability to appropriate the ransom which was given to him. He was not aware that Jesus was divine as well as human. Now, beginning very early, Western, the Western fathers, feeling more rationalistic, avoided more and more this uh, idea of the ransom to the devil. And of course, later there was the Anselmian theory of satisfaction, which was they were doing away completely with ransom to the devil. And anyway, you could say, or some people practically said, that it was shifting from ransom to the devil to ransom to God. But I won't say anything about the Anselmian uh, uh, theory of redemption. Maybe I said too much already. Uh, anyway, today there is a profound dissatisfaction with all available theories of redemption because if people don't want the Anselmian view anymore, they certainly don't want to go back to the idea of a uh, ransom to uh, the devil, you see. And uh, yet I would like to show that it makes a good deal of sense, really, if you uh, look at it in a certain way. Most, many people would say that this cluster of metaphors must not be pushed too far, you know. You have, in a way, to jump from one to another. But uh, do, we, do we have actually a, a, a theory of... Uh, redemption, which uh, everybody acknowledges as uh, the good one, I don't, I don't think we do. And uh, the cluster of metaphors I'm talking about, of course, goes back not only to Judaism, but uh, to uh, the immemorial religious background of uh, humanity, redemption, sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ, you know. Uh, practically every word is already present in pagan religion. And that's a very important thing because, in a way, the re- it takes us to another 
great problem of Christianity in the 19th and the 20th century, which I think has been eluded by the Christians, and I think it's a wrong thing to do to elude it, which is the problem of the resemblances between uh, myth and uh, the mythical story, mythos means story, and the Christian story. Um, I'm going to define these resemblances my own way. Naturally, it would take a tremendous amount of discussion to uh, justify what I'm doing, but I don't have time. And uh, I will just tell you how I define them. And I think they are very extensive and very real. At the beginning of mythology, just as at the beginning of the Gospels, we have a community which is crippled by some kind of crisis. I don't think myth always have to do with origins, as people say, you know, the, the deconstructors still say that. And it's really the influence of Genesis on the readers of myth that persuaded them that myth were that. But myth really begin with a crisis, which is a little bit, you, you might say, like the crisis of the Jewish state at the beginning of the Gospels. Then the, the worse that crisis gets, uh, the, the more there is a tendency to identify an individual who seems to be responsible for that crisis. And indeed, as soon as this individual is expelled or killed, very often by the whole community, the crisis comes to an end. In the conclusion, the victim triumphantly returns and is acknowledged as a transcendental savior, a new divinity. And the Christian faith, of course, claims to be uniquely true. And how can this claim be valid if Christianity shares the same basic structure with a vast number of men? Is it not more scientific, quote-unquote, to regard Christianity as one more death and resurrection myth, similar to all such myths? This is what most modern intellectuals believe. As a matter of fact, one might characterize the second half of the 20th century as the period in which that belief has spread to the Christians themselves, which makes it very different from what happened before. Because before, when people no longer believed in the uniqueness of uh, uh, Christ and Christianity, they left the churches on tiptoes, you see what I mean? But today, it's really the churches themselves that don't believe in it and turn into an ethical principle the pluralism and the fact that you should not believe in the uniqueness of Christianity. That if you do, you're not pluralistic enough and you're betraying uh, uh, the real moral principle of Christianity, which is its humility. Christianity should be so humble that it should deny its own truth. And of course, this is very far from the uh, spirit of the uh, Gospels. I think that all the people who condemn all missionary efforts and so forth could not do that if deep down they did not presuppose that uh, the belief in the uniqueness of Christianity is outdated and is finished. And if you really polled Christians on that subject, you would find that probably a majority of them today uh, believe that. <coughs> the, the question of the similarities between the mythical and the Christian was the province of anthropologists from the middle of the 19th century, before, people like Voltaire, of course, talked about that, from the Enlightenment, you might say, to the Freud period. And all these people started from mythology in order to reduce Christianity to mythology. And if you really look at what they did, they never managed to uh, do it. But this did not uh, serve uh, 
the interest of Christianity very much because uh, the very presence of the resemblances um, in a way uh, makes people feel that the probability is that uh, Christianity is only one more uh, death and resurrection uh, myth and it's probably much more important today than we realize for instance what Bultmann really believes the whole enterprise of demythologizing and so forth what people like uh, uh, Dreverman in Germany today, you know, it's so famous in Europe, but here they don't read it. He's really going back to this. And in school, when the students, you know, feel very scientific when they say, uh, freshman, the Christian myth, instead of a Christian religion, they feel very good and powerful. And uh, uh, you see, and in a way, this spirit is, uh, is all over the place. So wh what, what I want to do really is to... Uh, is to pursue this matter. I think Christians never pursued it. They avoided it like the plague, in a way. And I think it must be done in a purely anthropological way. But it must be done in a purely anthropological way, not starting from mythology, as the anthropologists did, because myths are simply too opaque. They won't give you any light on what they are about. And if you start using the Gospels as an anthropological text, suddenly many things make sense, and illuminate myth as well as the Gospels at the same time. For instance, the question is, what is the passion from an anthropological viewpoint? What is the crucifixion? You see, and you have to answer, I think, that it is a mob uh, phenomenon. Except for the women, the hostility against uh, Jesus for a while contaminates all witnesses including Jesus' own disciples, of course, from Judas to Peter himself. This hostile unanimity is made more paradoxical, and I think it's a way for the Gospels to emphasize it, by the enthusiastic welcome given to Jesus a few days earlier when he arrived in Jerusalem. Are there two different crowds, one for Jesus and one against Jesus? If this were the case, these two crowds would manifest themselves both on Palm Sunday and on Good Friday. No, there is only one crowd. So how could so many people favorable to Jesus on one day become convinced a few days later that he should be crucified? That's what the Gospel tells us. I'm always talking about the text here. I'm not talking about history. You see, so did they carefully weigh the evidence against Jesus? Of course not. Were they influenced by their religious leaders? Probably. But these same leaders until that time had been unable to do anything about Jesus' popularity. Therefore, we have to assume that between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, the Jerusalem crowd made a complete about-face and turned itself into some kind of uh, something close to a lynching mob, which is what I mean when I say we are dealing with a mob phenomenon. In, in other words, with a contagious violence that spreads very fast through a tidal wave of mimetic contagion. And the best evidence for this, of course, is Peter's denial. The psychological interpretation of Peter's denial is really one of the worst aspects of modern uh, attitudes toward the gospel, to reduce everything to psychology, which is ridiculous, I think. Peter is not the weakest disciple. He's the strongest. That's why his denial is so significant. His denial would not be significant if it could be interpreted psychologically. 
the Gospels are not interested at this point to talk about the psychology of Peter or anyone else. The Gospels are trying to show us what the passion is. Therefore, it's very important that Peter's behavior is typical of the way mobs come into being. In other words, as soon as he's plunged into a crowd hostile to Jesus, he becomes hostile to Jesus. He imitates that crowd. And this is exemplified not only by Peter and by all the other disciples, but by everybody else, including Pilate. Pilate <coughs> really yields to the mimetic pressure of the crowd. The mimetic dimension of his behavior escapes us because we believe in politics and in political science. You see what I mean? And we say it's his political strategy, of course. But this political strategy we know about if we just go to familiar talk about, you know, the main political principle, not only in a democracy, but in Judea, is if you can't beat them, join them. You see, if you, if you go that way, and this is the mimetic uh, principle by excellence. And also, of course, the two thieves crucified next to Jesus. Their imitation is grotesquely obvious. The more crucified one feels, the more one feels like crucifying other people. They shout insults to Jesus because they cannot refrain from imitating the mob. As a violent event, therefore, Jesus' death is typical rather than unique. I think and the danger of a certain Christology is to, uh, in a way, have some kind of mimetic rivalry about how much greater the suffering of Jesus is than the suffering. I think this is very bad, too, because it's Jesus himself who advises us to compare his death to the death of other victims since the foundation of the world, since Abel the Just. Today, people don't dare talk about that because they think it's anti-Semitic. But Cain was not a Jew that I know of. The Jews did not exist. Therefore, we are talking about something much more general, going to the beginning of culture. What Jesus says is, I'm going to be killed in the same way culture was initiated. And uh, what do we know about this mob phenomena? It's very interesting that we have no sociological knowledge of them. In other words, sociologists turn away from this type of phenomena. They don't want to consider them as worthy of being investigated. But we have familiar language. We have the word scapegoat. Some theologians are scandalized because I use the word scapegoat all the time in its modern, familiar meaning, which comes from Leviticus 16, but because I'm talking about the gospel, it doesn't mean I'm talking about the familiar meaning. I say, you're talking about the, uh, the everyday meaning of scapegoat? Yes, that's what we should be interested in. And we shouldn't be scandalized by that. Because when we say scapegoat, someone is a scapegoat, we mean precisely that uh, he is there in the place of many victims who might be more guilty than he is, or might be collectively guilty. And I think that the scapegoat status of Jesus is not something that the Gospels try to hide. On the contrary, they emphasize it in every possible way, not only by Jesus pointing out uh, what his own death meant, but the use of the word scapegoat, of course, is not in the Bible, but we have an expression which is much better, which is Lamb of God, which means the same thing as scapegoat, but it is more appropriate and effective as a metaphor, since a lamb is more obviously innocent an innocent victim than an ugly and stinking he goat and we are aware that a lamb should not be sacrificed or we have 
I, I could quote so many things there that I must go very fast. You know, the stone that the builders rejected and so forth. And many of these metaphors or these phrases come from the, uh, the Old Testament. I think that the Barabbas episode is very important for that too. What does it mean? It means that Pilate is a, an administrator, a Roman administrator. He knows about mobs. It's his job. Therefore, he knows he's in a substitution game. You see what I mean? And that's why he offers Barabbas. Why does he offer Barabbas? Because to kill Barabbas was already legally condemned will be less of an infringement upon the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, than killing someone who has not been condemned by anybody. Pilate is thinking about the report he's going to send to Rome about what's happening, and he wants to look as good as possible. And that is certainly one valid reason for him to try to save Jesus. Proof that he doesn't want to save Jesus that much is that as soon as he, re as he realizes that substitution won't work anymore because the crowd has solidified, as all such crowds do, on its victim, it will not accept anymore. It's just too late. As soon as he realizes that, he surrenders uh, Jesus. Therefore, he acts like a good Roman administrator. You'll find countless texts which have similar things. And Pilate is successful. After the crucifixion, the crowd peacefully disperses. The crucifixion turns the crowd into spectators of a horrible spectacle, such as the ones uh, uh, Hollywood dispenses to us uh, every day nowadays. And there is one evangelist who accentuates the scapegoat reconciling effect, which has nothing to do with the Christian communion. And it is Luke. Because Luke tells us from that day on, the day of the Passion, Pilate and Herod, who had been enemies, became friends. This is an incredibly powerful thing. You see, because they, they, are not, they have not become Christians. We are talking about something which is a sociological and anthropological phenomenon that uh, uh, Luke is observing. It's the same... Uh, Luke has notation. Well, I'm not going to say that because I'm not going to say that. Now, let us go back to myth and ask ourselves, is the frequent recurrence of collective violence in them might not be due to the same kind of mob phenomenon we have in the Gospels? It looks scary to a Christian. This is say, well, it's going to be exactly the same thing. And the resemblances between the two types of texts obviously suggest that they must we may surmise that in myth, too, the initial crisis triggers the mimetic violence, and this violence, in turn, reconciles the community. The collective violence in myth has the same positive effects on the communities as the Gospels, except that these effects are infinitely more powerful and spectacular. Thanks to the unanimous death of the victim, new institutions are born, the entire culture is reinvigorated, or sometimes it seems completely new, you see, this rejuvenation seems like the creation of a culture. That's why people always talk about origin, when in reality uh, we are dealing, I think, in myth with a recurrent pattern of reinvigoration through scapegoat effect. We do not find in myth, to be sure, anything as explicit as Peter's denial. We find mimetic indications, but they are always sacred. They are sacred pollution. They are not... Uh, uh, define in a context that makes them intelligible to us. The Gospels are enormously more intelligible. 
In the Gospels, we have no mob lynching as we do in many myths. But if Pilate had resisted the will of the mob, there might have been one before the arrival of military reinforcements that Pilate would have called immediately, the crowd would have had time to stone Jesus. And anyway, in the Gospels, you have many attempted stoning of Jesus, or several, which uh, do not work. Therefore, we are incredibly close to mythical uh, violence. It is the same violence. Uh, there is also more evidence, you know, that myths are scapegoat violence, which is nothing to do with the Gospels, which is really the type of faults and physical defects that you find in mythical heroes. You know, This has been discussed by anthropologists, but they never got anywhere. You know, so many heroes are cripples, one-eyed, blind, this and that. And if we saw that in a medieval text, we would immediately recognize a mob on the rampage. You see what I mean? But uh, when we talk about myth, we don't dare do that because we respect mythology infinitely, much more, I think, than uh, we should. In the midst of all these similarities, however, there is one divergence which, is, which keeps recurring all the time and therefore should be noted. It is the fact that victims in myth, as a rule, are represented as guilty. Oedipus is supposed to have really killed his father and married his mother, and thus caused the plague which destroys his community. Can you imagine that? When we, we find this at the time of the Black Death, too, and we immediately recognize a mob on the rampage. In the case of uh, Oedipus, if you see this, you're destroying uh, all Western culture. You see, but obviously it must be the same thing. Um, since scapegoats are always irrelevant, if not always innocent, irrelevant to the type of guilt which is thrown upon them, all mythical texts explicitly contradict the Gospels on this point. The Gospels represent Jesus and John, John the Baptist. I forget, I wanted to talk about John the Baptist, but I don't have time. The thing which is amazing, John the Baptist is obviously a scapegoat story. You see, it's a scapegoat story with the mimetic influence being concentrated on in the Salome's dancing, which has no equivalent in the Gospel. John the Baptist is very close to the passion in terms of what it is anthropologically, just as a servant of suffering servant is. But if you look at the details of the text, not one is the same. Therefore, it cannot be a copy, it cannot be a doublet, in the sense of mythologists and so forth. It is the same type of phenomenon. It is a scapegoat phenomenon. You see, so next to all the similarities between mythology on the one hand, the Gospels on the other hand, I'm not talking about the Bible there, but I will say a word about it, the whole Bible. You see, what about this discrepancy? The victim is guilty here, innocent there. The crowd is innocent here, guilty there. There is a reversal between myth and the Gospels. The real reversal is the one Nietzsche alone saw. We all see it, of course, because it's obvious, but Nietzsche is the only one who emphasized it. In myth, it's never the crowd, never the state that's guilty. That's why Nietzsche is for myth, because it's violent, because it accepts to destroy victims. That's where Nietzsche is proto-Nazi, very obviously. Whereas... Uh, the Bible and Christianity are fundamentally anti-victimage. They declare that the victimage is guilty because the uh, uh, victims are innocent. Does it mean 
that uh, we cannot see myth as being scapegoat phenomena, just as the Gospels? Obviously not. Obviously not. What we have to understand is that myth must be inextricably involved in scapegoating precisely because they never mention it as scapegoating. Many critics, you know, criticize me because they say, but Girard doesn't understand anything. He doesn't realize that the scapegoats are in the Gospels and not in mythology. So what do they do? They mistake, they mistake scapegoating for a literary theme like any other. A literary theme, if it is there, visible in the text, it is there in the text, if there is nothing more to say. If it is not there, it's not there. And you have to have it some kind of theory like psychoanalysis in order to deny that. But in the case of scapegoating, we don't need that. We are all aware that scapegoating is a principle of collective self-delusion rather than a theme. And it will be visible only to those who manage to escape its influence, who do not see it, uh, 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 who are not swayed by it. The authors of the Gospels obviously are not deluded by the scapegoating of Jesus, since they represent him as a victim wrongly persecuted by a mimetically deceived mob. They can therefore represent scapegoating accurately. They rehabilitate the victim and they condemn the deluded persecutors. Long before the Gospels, of course, many biblical texts had done the same thing. They had rehabilitated scapegoats, like the suffering servant is a good example. Everything which is in the gospel is there, except, I think, the, the specifically mimetic aspect, which is so emphasized in scenes like Peter's uh, denial. I think that Job also shifts from being an idol of his people to being a victim of his people. Or Joseph is an anti-Oedipus myth. Uh, the questions of the Joseph story are always the same as those of the Oedipus myth. Is he guilty? Is he guilty of trying to kill his parents and, and so forth? Is he guilty of having committed incest with his mother? Is he guilty of giving the plague? So forth? The myth always answers yes, yes, yes. And the biblical story already answers no, no, no. This is the sort of thing the Gentiles believe. But we Jews are better than that. We don't believe in that scapegoating. The Joseph story, therefore... To say that it is prophetic of Christianity, as medieval people said, was not stupid, as we hear today, from a naively historicist point of view, which is positivistic and stupid. It means that a certain attitude toward victims, which is typically Christian, is already there in the Joseph story. Therefore, the two stories speak to each other in a way that the Oedipus myth doesn't speak to the, uh, uh, the Gospels, of course. Now, for the definition of myth that I give, there cannot be any direct textual evidence because the myth, precisely if it is scapegoating, if it is the work of united scapegoaters, it will never reveal it because scapegoaters believe in what they are doing. And all they will do will tell you, we killed the right victim, we did the right thing. They will never use the word scapegoat for their victim any more than the anti-Dreyfus people use the word scapegoat for Dreyfus. The people who use the word scapegoat were the pro-Dreyfus people. And if we followed the people who condemned me, we should condemn today the pro-Dreyfus people because they use the word scapegoat. They were obviously the scapegoaters of Dreyfus since they said so. See what I mean? You see the confusion between theme and structuring principle? 
which is taking place. You see? And uh, once you see it, you cannot forget it, but in a way it's difficult to see. And it's difficult to see because we are in a world also which philosophically is against representation. And the Gospels are for, the Bible and the Gospels are for representation. What myths are unable to represent, the Gospels and the Bible become able to represent. And we can see it when we examine the structure of the text. Because in no myth will you find a minority rebelling against the majority, which is what the disciples are. These disciples who were so weak, you know, who yielded to mimetic pressure two days earlier, and the Gospels are right to emphasize that, on the third day of Jesus' death, they changed radically. Why do they change? This is what I would like the historical scholars to tell us, if they are so good, you know, at understanding historical phenomena. Why do they change so radically once they've already been absorbed by the mythology of, uh, uh, of scapegoating? In other words, have become unable to see scapegoating. Why do they suddenly see it? You see, this is the great question. Why are they giving us a text which describes scapegoating as scapegoating instead of de describing it as the just condemnation of a guilty person like uh, Oedipus? This is the difference between mythology and the Christian text. This difference is so powerful, so striking, so important to our world that sooner or later the truth is going to come out. And the AR meetings will change. We'll have to change a little bit, you know, I think, when this happens. Between collective violence in the biblical text and collective violence in the mythical text, the combination of similarities and dissimilarities is exactly what it should be in order to confirm that myths, on the one hand, Judeo-Christian texts, on the other, truly embody the only two ways in which scapegoat phenomena can be represented. The, deceitful, the deceitful way, which is the mythical way, which is the way of the unanimous persecutors, and the accurate way, which is the way of the Bible and the Gospels alone. In the Bible, we usually do not see the dissenting minority, but we feel its presence in the suffering servant. In the Gospel, the dissenting minority is very important, since it's the disciple. So there we cannot have any doubt. And we know that that dissenting minority is not dissenting of its own accord, because of its own power, because of its human perspicacity, since at first it yielded to the scapegoat pressure, which is one of the most marvelous things that the gospel do. You see, and when people tell you it's the same as the death of Socrates and so forth, it's not true. In the death of Socrates, philosophy is always right. Philosophy always understands that Socrates is innocent. Philosophy is never swayed by the mob, even though they all say the same thing at every time. And fashion is more powerful in philosophy than in any other field. But they are not aware of it. When passion is powerful, when uh, fashion is very powerful, no one is aware of following fashion, which is exactly the same thing as scapegoating. It's Anna Arendt who said justly that a world of intellectual fashion is always a world which is pre-totalitarian. It's about to become unified against certain scapegoats, which is, I think, the danger of the present situation in American universities. Dissent has become... Uh, uh, guilty, you know, in many often. So, the truth of the Gospels that I'm talking about, which is also the truth of the Bible, is an anthropological truth, of course. It does not demonstrate that Jesus Christ is God. 
or that Yahweh uh, truly exists. Christianity will always remain a matter of faith. Nevertheless, this truth is extremely important. It should discredit those who think they can discredit Christianity with remnants of 19th century scientific prejudice and historical naivete. It should make it more difficult for our undergraduates to say automatically the Christian myth as if it were the scientific way of uh, speaking. Many people object to what I say because they say, well, he's a Christian anyway. But Nietzsche was not a Christian, and he understood what I understood. The thing that is that he felt there were two kinds of myth, the good ones, which were for violence, and the bad ones, which were against violence. The one thing he didn't see is that unanimity, the unanimity that the Gospels condemn, you see, is the victims in scapegoating are really necessarily innocent. They cannot be guilty of what they are accused. Therefore, when the Bible and the Gospels tell you about the innocence of the victim, they say something which had never been said before. You know, in many languages, there is no word for scapegoat in our modern sense. The Japanese have to borrow our word. You see what I mean? I don't say they are different from us. We are better. I'm talking about the Christian text. When the whole world is Western today anyway, so it makes no sense to condemn Western Christianity. But our awareness of victimage, our awareness of oppression and so forth, is necessarily linked to what I'm talking about now. Because if you had gone to a Roman uh, uh, procurator like uh, uh, Pilate and told him, I'm a victim, I have rights as a victim, I've been victimized by the Christians, he would have laughed at you. You see what I mean? And probably put you to jail besides for being completely mad. Since all cultures have mythical gods or have had them in the past, the all-against-one pattern of mimetic violence, the scapegoat pattern must, seems to occur in all human cultures, including our own Christian or post-Christian culture, but probably in a different way much of the time. What is the reason for the universality, if I'm right? What is the reason for the universality of this all-against-one pattern? It would be better maybe to, be, to say that, all against one pattern, rather than uh, scapegoating. My answer, of course, you know it or you don't know it, but I won't have time to explain this, is that human desire is mimetic. That human relations, if Jesus talks, imitate me, imitate my father, you know, he means imitate someone who has no possessive desire. Someone, some model who will not become your rival. And in order to understand that properly, you should connect it with the 10th commandment in the Bible about covetousness. The 10th commandment is almost comically mimetic. You know, do not covet thy neighbor's wife, thy neighbor's donkey, that na thy neighbor's servant, and so on. And it tries to enumerate everything we should not desire, but it cannot do it. And ultimately, it says, do not co covet any possession of your neighbor, because that's what desire is. Desire is to desire the possessions of our neighbor. This is what the Ten Commandments tell us, you know, and no one seems to be aware of that because we are all individualists and we have our own desire, which is different from that of any other people. We don't share their ambitions, their desire in any way. We are totally independent and supreme individualists. The Bible obviously doesn't believe in that beginning with the Ten uh, Commandments. Therefore, we live in a world 
in which the escalation of mimetic rivalry is always threatening what? Crisis of the type I have described. Crisis of the mythical type or the gospel type or the type you have at the beginning of the suffering servant. We were all in disarray. We were moving one way and another. You know, the chaos of, which is always, I think, the chaos of uh, mimetic uh, rivalry. Therefore, why are human societies possible? This is a question that political scientists never pose. You know, or only someone like Hobbes really posed it, because uh, Hobbes said people have a tendency to desire what their neighbors desire, and therefore they fight for this. And uh, this fight tends to uh, turn into uh, a uh, mimetic free-for-all. Therefore, what do they do? And you know, there Hobbes, bizarrely, the one who is closest to the truth, goes back to a mimetic, uh, uh, to a social contract. He says, well, people get tired of fighting, and one fine day they sit around a green base, uh, you know, in diplomatic fashion, and they have a social contract according to which they surrender all their powers to uh, the government. But this makes no sense, because this should happen at the moment when people are most excited by their own fighting. It cannot be. Anthropologically, if the type of crisis Hobbes himself is talking about, which is really what I call the mimetic crisis, there must be some natural restraining device, some natural phenomenon, which is part of the mimetic crisis. And in my view, of course, it is the mimetic uh, 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 scapegoat mechanism. There is a tendency for mimesis to focus on fewer and fewer victims and finally to focus on a single one. When it finally focuses on a single one, the single victim can be destroyed without any problem for anybody. In other words, the spirit of vengeance will be extinguished when the one who is the object of everybody's uh, hatred will be uh, destroyed. I really think that not only this is the beginning of human society, but of course it is the beginning of human religion. Because we can well understand that uh, when human communities believe in their scapegoat as the one which is responsible for all their troubles, and then they destroy that scapegoat, and they discover that indeed their troubles are ended. You see what I mean? What are they going to think? They are too modest. They know themselves too well to know that this reconciliation is their own deliberate doing, that it's a kind of social contract. Therefore, they are going to turn outside for the Savior. And who would it be? Their victim, of course. The victim who is responsible for the trouble has appeased the trouble by dying or by having a sacrifice. That's what we call the primitive sacred, which unites evil and good, violence and peace in such a way as to uh, reconcile the community against it and around it. I think it is the source of prohibitions in archaic culture, and of course of ritual. Because what are sacrificial rites? If you ask archaic people, we don't have any more real sacrifices, but if you ask them, why do you do these rituals? They all have the same answer, you know, which no anthropologist has taken seriously yet. All archaic people, when they ask this question, do we do it to commemorate the first visit of the God who taught us sacrifice? But at the same time, we do it to be reconciled. 
because sacrifices are supposed to heal our problems. What does it mean? It means that sacrifice is a deliberate attempt on the part of archaic people to reenact the scapegoat phenomenon in order to reproduce the same reconciling effect that really took place the first time. In other words, <coughs> we must believe what archaic people say. We must not simply say that we are for archaic people and that we are great lovers of all religions and so forth. We must listen to what primitive archaic cultures say and we will see that it makes an enormous deal of sense, just like the Gospels, if we take seriously what most communities, I think all communities in that case, say. So the modern tendency to regard each archaic culture and culture as a purely human invention, unrelated to any other culture, current relativism, each one a totally gratuitous invention of autonomous individuals who happen to be together for some reason we don't know about, because they want to classify reality, Levi-Strauss would tell us, the, the strongly suggest a unity of human institution, the similarity everywhere of sacrifices, prohibition, and myth suggest that uh, these three pillars of archaic culture go back to the same explanation, which is misunderstood scapegoating. That's why these explanations are always religious. I don't have time to show you how well it fits the data, but this is, of course, what I try to show in violence and the sacred before I talked about Christianity. Social organizations originate, therefore, not in social contracts, as all modern theoreticians ultimately believe. Even Hobbes and even Freud, even though Freud has a collective murder, he needs a social contract. It's not the collective murder of the father directly which creates society. It's people fighting about that, and ultimately they get back together and they have the inevitable social contract, which I regard as a total absurdity. Therefore, there is a false transcendence abroad, which is a transcendence of scapegoating, the transcendence of successful scapegoating. When scapegoating is unanimous and successful, it reconciles the community. Therefore, the scapegoat becomes a god, becomes a god just as Jesus, you might say, is a demonized scapegoat, but it cannot be for the same reasons. Since Jesus is demonized, as a scapegoat who makes it known that he is a scapegoat. Whereas all archaic divinities are scapegoats we are, which are, who are divinized without our knowing about them. If we knew about them, we couldn't divinize them because they would no longer absorb the evil transference of the community. We have to believe in their evil in their bad aspects in order to believe in their good aspect. This is what archaic religion is. And I really think that uh, one of the greatest indications that the scapegoat theory of mythology and the Gospels is true is the fact that the Gospels talk about this false transcendence. This false transcendence, we have an example of it when Herod divinizes uh, John the Baptist whom he has killed that's what the text says he divinizes him because he has killed him he doesn't divinize John the Baptist in a Christian way but this is an example of archaic religion 
which are, the Gospels have an example there. But they have another, they have a, a technical word to talk about that, which is the word Satan, of course. And that, again, I'm sorry to have to use the word Satan because it is not very nice. But uh, who is Satan? You know, the, the original meaning of Satan, we think, is the slanderer, the accuser. Why does Satan deserve this name? Because he makes most men believe that the victims unanimously condemned in their myth are necessarily guilty. Whereas in reality, they are innocent in the same sense that Jesus, Jesus of course, theologically is innocent in a different way, but in the same sense that the Bible and the Gospel show you. The Bible and the Gospels are not under the influence of Satan because they do not accept the slandering of Satan. They do not accept that the victims of collective violence <coughs> are guilty. Satan is a most successful slanderer. He's a liar and the father of lies because he's able to persuade everybody that his accusations are true. And his power to persuade is one with his mimetic nature, which is greatly emphasized in all traditional texts. Satan is the ape of God, and this is a very important thing. Satan or the devil must be regarded as synonymous with a conflictual mimesis that stirs people against one another until the moment when they become reunified against the victim of an accusation, the slanderous nature of which they are unable to detect. Satan, therefore, is the entire process of the conflictual mimetic desire and rivalry up to and including the scapegoat mechanism which is his own secret weapon and the real reason why he's so powerful, why he's the prince of this world. He's not disorder only, he's also order. If you don't take that into account, you don't understand the extreme singularity of the gospel Satan, who, which is one of the most powerful things in the gospels. Satan is the one who triggers the victimage mechanism because he's the prince of disorder. And he rescued the threatened community from total destruction. When Jesus says in the Gospel of John that the devil was a murderer from the beginning, from Arche, from the origin, this really means that the origin, not of creation, of course, as John Milbank said that I believe, which is not true, but he's the origin of human society. Human society belongs to Satan. The origin is the reunifying and the reordering which is generated by first scapegoat phenomenon, which generates a false god and becomes a rallying point for the entire community. The devil is a murderer from the, the origin. This really means that all human society, beginning with the first, but also the following ones, originate in misunderstood scapegoat phenomena, around which the first sacrificial cults were organized, the first systems of prohibition set up. This first cultural elaboration enables human groups to moderate mimetic rivalry, and this is how the first developments of human civilization became possible. In the Old Testament, of course, this is the story of Cain. The story of Cain has only two episodes, the murder of the brother and the foundation of the first culture. The foundation of the first culture is directly dependent on the murder. The murder doesn't seem to be a collective mimetic murder, but it really is because it's a murder of brothers, doubles, who are another uh, symbol. I don't have time to talk about that, of course. But how do the Gospels talk about that, too? You know, they say something very powerful, I believe, which is the answer of Jesus to the question 
which has never received any answer, by the way, how can Satan cast out Satan? This answer should be answered positively. Yes, Satan can cast out Satan. But how can he do it? This really means, how can the main cause of disorder in this world also be the cause of reordering and provide men with a type of sacrificial order that enables them to live together in relative peace. The peace as the world gives it. The only peace human beings know, which is always a scapegoat truce, which is not the peace that passeth all understanding, which is the peace of uh, God. The reason humanity is enslaved to Satan is not simply that human beings are sinful, therefore, as theologians always say. It is that they are dependent on Satan and his violent tricks for the minimal peace they enjoy through the scapegoat-making machine, which is extreme disorder. Satan is the real source of uh, human order. In what sense did God, therefore, I'm going back to my first idea of the ransom to Satan. In what sense did God, through the death of Jesus, trick Satan and brought about his downfall, the end of his power as prince of this world? The theory of the ransom to Satan is based on a great amount of gospel material, of course, which is, I see Satan falling like lightning, the power of Satan is at an end, which modern theologians don't even take into account anymore because they take for granted that the notion of Satan is an absurdity which we modern people have totally outgrown, you know, and uh, don't have anything to worry about. So the answer is very easy. Jesus died the death he did because he obeyed to the end his own recommendations against mimetic rivalry and violence. The prescriptions of the kingdom of God, the other cheek, walk a mile, two miles if they ask for one, it's not a lifestyle. It is not a political program at the 19th century believe. It is when you're confronted by outrageous demands, which happens too, quite often, but not all the time. The only way you can stop the mimetic escalation is to give up everything. It's to, because anyway, the stakes of the rivalry are non-existent. So you'd better get... The, the, the good interpreter of this saying is Paul, when he says, if you do not reply with to violence with violence, you heap burning embers on your opponent's head. You set up a rivalry of non-violence instead of a rivalry of violence. I think that uh, the tone of the Gospels is very different, of course, but we should interpret this that way. And to say the kingdom of God is among you is right here, means that if we all obeyed these prescriptions, there would be no more violence. Therefore, the kingdom of God is always available. But if there, uh, if there is only one person who follows the rules of the kingdom of God, this person being Jesus, and if everybody goes back to scapegoat ways, it is necessary, here again it would demand a little bit of uh, playing around with mimetic uh, uh, material, it is necessary that the proponent of this uh, total change in human relations, you know, w will be himself, will become the scapegoat. He will have to become the scapegoat because, uh, because he has revealed too much about the system of this world and the system of this world can survive only by destroying him. So, Jesus' death, nevertheless, is not in vain since instead of being recorded in the shape of a myth, instead of being distorted in the usual way as Satan 
fully expected would happen, of course. Instead of being a myth, the third day after his death, Jesus resurrects. Or you can put the resurrection between parentheses. The disciples change their mind miraculously. They reject the scapegoating they had accepted the day before. And therefore, they become fearless witnesses for the innocence of the scapegoat, which has never happened before in history. And they tell you, tell us everything in the Gospels about scapegoating, including, which is most important and most difficult, the role of mimetic contagion. Think of Peter. Think of poor Peter. You see what I mean? Who has become the butt of our jokes ever since because of that. The important thing to understand, of course, is that the here, if we, are, if we reflect upon what I've been saying, we catch the power, what Paul calls the power of the cross. The power of the cross tells us what men are. They all surrender to mimetic rivalry. And the more they surrender to it, the less able they are to uh, see it. And, uh, of course, the, the principle of scapegoating there is uh, unveiled. Therefore, what does the, the end of the power of Satan mean? What Jesus says, I think, means that the power of Satan, which is also the power of the principalities and powers, so-called powers and all the various names. In other words, the power of uh, state organizations is undermined by the gospel's revelation. And this makes quite a bit of sense if uh, culture is based on scapegoating. In a world where the truth of scapegoating is accessible, at least to the simple people, if not to the wise and the learned who are not interested in uh, such things, uh, the power of society itself will be endangered, will be threatened, will be weakened. The old patristic idea that Satan was tricked by God is not magical at all. It is grounded in the first letters to the Corinthians 2.7, which says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glorification. None of the princes of this world understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If Satan had known what Paul knows, he would not have triggered the scapegoat mechanism against Jesus. And today he wouldn't. He would regard him as a victim, of course. Um, he would have realized that instead of generating one more myth, as scapegoating normally does, the murder of Jesus was about, would be portrayed with such truthfulness that it would uncover once and for all the secret of Satan's power. The undermining of Satan's power doesn't mean that Satan is completely at an end. It means that Satan cannot leash himself anymore. Therefore, Satan, for a while, is unleashed. I think all these things are worked out in John's revelation. This undermining is very slow. And even after 2,000 years, it's not over, as we can see. Because we do not, we do not still understand the true revelatory nature of the cross in regard to human affairs. But all simple people in, a world, in our world are aware of scapegoating to a degree that is unimaginable without the cross. This awareness, even when it is turned into a weapon against Christianity itself, is a product of the Christian Gospels, and it is generating an entirely new historical world, which makes sense only 
in the light of the Gospels. What, what Satan did not foresee is that in the case of Jesus, the unanimity, unanimity of scapegoating would collapse because of the disciples. And why does it collapse? You see what I mean? Because there the accuser is counter, countered by someone else. What the Gospels tell you makes make full sense. Who is responsible for the resurrection? Who is responsible for the conversion of Peter and the reconversion of Paul? Who is responsible for the fact that the innocence of Jesus is recognized? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in Greek, I always say this, and I love to end my uh, talks on this. The Holy Spirit in Greek is the word parakletos, which uh, Jerome didn't dare translate because it sounds too strange and too simple. It simply means the lawyer for the defense in the normal way of a Greek tribunal. You see what I mean? But if you pair the lawyer for the defense with the accuser, you understand very well that the important thing in this world is precisely to change from the accuser, Satan, and mythology to the lawyer for the defense and the Gospels that show you the innocence of the victim. This is still a purely anthropological revelation. But the question is, what made it possible if it was not the natural perspicacity and steadfastness of the apostles? In other words, what I'm saying is purely worldly and uh, social science, but it put the Christian faith in an entirely different light. It, put the, it, it gives it intellectual respectability again, because it makes full sense to say that that revelation of scapegoating, as it takes place in mythical circumstances, only in a, in, a, in a full fashion in the gospel, cannot be a purely human thing. This is what the gospels tell you. It demanded the intervention of a spirit more powerful than ours, who could see through the lie of Satan and communicate to these poor people who were mimetically inclined to keep on scapegoating. Thank you very much. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.